welcome back to Night Cheese. Uh, thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, as always, I'm Steven. And I'm Tim. And you have reached us for episode 58, uh, titled Jack Torrance Could Use a Good Lawyer. Um, we have returned to uh, an old familiar format of ours. I would say semi-familiar <laughs> format of ours. Um, tonight, when we launched our podcast years ago, um, what we used to do was each just independently pick a title ourselves and just sort of share them with one another. And um, we've ventured into kind of viewing the same material for our more current episodes um, in hopes of, you know, developing deeper discussion. But just for fun, we decided to go back to the old model mm-hmm. for this episode. So we may revisit this model Every once in a while, um, we do have some other things planned uh, that should be hitting you in here in the future. But um, for tonight, we're going to have a, a vintage night cheese experience. So if you're in any way familiar with some of the terms in our t- uh, episode title tonight, you probably already have a, a good feeling about what I was about to say films, but Tim is actually going to be sharing a TV show with us tonight, and I'll be sharing a film. Um, so the content that we are sharing, um, that's that's the 2020 word for that, content. <laughs> so um, so we have so, some interesting things to share. So I guess really it's just, uh, it's just a matter, Tim, of which one of us wants to go first, huh? Yeah. Yeah, we used to flip a coin for this, but <laughs> I don't have one with an arm's reach of me right now. Uh, <laughs> So, I don't know how we're going to do this. You want to do tell it on my? You want to tell? Uh, uh, I can ask uh, Google to flip a coin. Oh, really? How fancy! I don't even know if Siri will do that kind of thing. <laughs> Let me try real quick. Maybe. I'll... Yeah. Okay. Do you want me to do it? And like, you want? Do you want to call yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Go for okay. it. Okay. No, no, no. Oh, oh, do you want me to call it? Mm-hmm. Well, if technically you're flipping it, so I guess I should call it. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'll call. I'll call Tails. Okay. Flip a coin. Hang on. Flipping. It's flipping. It's heads. Oh, it's Wait. flipping now. Sorry. And, and it, it is tails. Ah, oh, nice. Right. Well done. Well okay, done. Okay, so um, in a good defensive-minded strategy, I'm going to defer to the second half. <laughs> um, so, Tim, uh, you can take it away and uh, go first tonight. Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, this is going to this is gonna be a, f- a very familiar-sounding I feel like I might be uh, become a broken record with this review, it, kind of in a way, um, just because uh, early, you know, early in Night Cheese lore, I uh, recommended Breaking Bad, and then recently when we, you know, gave our favorite uh, shows of the past decade, Breaking Bad was was up at the top for me, and <laughs> now <laughs> I'm going to be recommending what is what has become in in the past five seasons. Uh, what has become probably one of my favorite shows uh, that I'm watching at the moment. And it is the spinoff of Breaking Bad called Better Call Saul. And I, uh, you know, just with the amount of love that I had for Breaking Bad, this feels really cliche to me. (laughs) But I will admit that when Better Call Saul was announced, I was very nervous. Uh, Not nervous, maybe, but just I wasn't as enthused I guess you could say I, um, I obviously, you know, Breaking Bad is phenomenal. I love Bob Odenkirk and his character, uh, Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad, even though he was mostly, mostly pretty two dimensional, but you could see the cracks. You could see 
moments here and there where he you could see like kind of a little more depth in his character on the show. But overall, he was pretty much just the kind of sleazy strip mall con lawyer type, you know, with like the the cheesy commercials with like the Constitution in the background. I mean, just the most (laughs) I mean, uh, just corny, uh, flashy suits. I mean, just the worst. And I love Bob Odenkirk. I think he he's incredible. And I think the fact, you know, for a comedian to be on a, a one of the best dramas on TV, I, I just, I think he fit that role perfectly. But when they announced Better Call Saul, I don't know, part of me was just a little nervous that there there's going to be just sort of like, kind of like a resting on your laurel. Like, I feel bad saying this because I love Vince Gilligan and I love the, the crew of, of Breaking Bad, which I think for the most part, almost all came back to do, uh, to do Better Call Saul. But part of me was just nervous that it was just going to be kind of one of those like, oh, you remember this? Remember this show? That was great, wasn't it? Here are some characters from that show. Yeah, yeah. Which I'll admit, yeah. even in the first, I want to say the first episode even, there's a little bit of that happening. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. I don't, because they would introduce, granted, they were deep cuts. They were kind of like these kind of more side characters, but they kind of popped up even in the first episode. And I was a little, I was a little nervous. I was like, oh. I don't know what they're going <laughs> to, but it, but better call Saul has become, and I'm afraid, I, I don't think I can say this for sure, but it, it is like getting ever increasingly close to like breaking bad status. If not, maybe better. It is become really? it's in like very different ways. So maybe I can't really compare and say one's definitively, better, but just in, in its own way, they, they do something completely different with better call Saul. And I, I, Love it. For first, let me you know, I'll kind of lay out the basic plot. It is a it is a prequel um, to Breaking Bad, so it's before uh, Saul Goodman becomes Saul Goodman. So um, in this show, uh, uh, Bob Odenkirk plays Jimmy McGill, who is a like a public defender trying to to do good. He early in his life he was more of a con artist, kind of would do like petty crimes to make money, and now he's trying to make good. He's trying to kind of prove that that is all behind him legitimately. Like he really wants to be a better person. And it's really, you could, in the first season and, and on, he's really struggling to, to be this, this, I w- well, I'll get to it later, but vision of himself that he wants to for himself, but then also for his family because his brother, his older brother, Chuck McGill, who is played by Michael McKean, who is, May so good. I love Michael McKean anyways, but he's so great in this role. He plays a very powerful and successful lawyer. And early on, you can tell it's very obvious that Jimmy just all his life has just wanted to be just like his brother and wanted to kind of prove himself and kind of uh, get his brother Chuck's support and respect and admiration. And so that's another reason I believe, you know, he's partially doing this as well, um, kind of making good. And one of the things that I love about this show is, you know, um, I'm going to pull up the quote right now because uh, Vince Gilligan, I think when he pitched, you know, Breaking Bad to to this, like, I guess, AMC and other studios, he just basically he said it was just one line. It was he wants this story to be about a man who transforms himself from Mr. Chips into Scarface so that like this kind of transformation of someone good going bad. And just through, you know, kind of maybe small decisions, but but that kind of, you know, in the momentum kind of forms this just avalanche of just uh, just really terrible decisions and terrible consequences. 
and although you know he you know Jimmy obviously becomes Saul Saul Goodman in the end becomes this kind of this sleazy lawyer um it's interesting to see it start off where he's kind of already been in bad situations already done even though they've been you know smaller scale and seeing him trying to make good but knowing knowing that this is where knowing kind of having in mind where Saul Goodman ends up in Breaking Bad uh makes for really interesting an interesting drama that I feel like, so I feel like with Breaking Bad, uh, with Walter, even though you know kind of who he's going to eventually, or not, I guess you don't know, but even though there's this trajectory that he's going on, I think there's always like this hope that maybe, maybe he'll make the right decision. Maybe he'll do something, even though ultimately the show is a tragedy. Breaking Bad is a tragedy. I think what's interesting with Better Call Saul is the, the more, since you know the ending, the more of a question is how does he get there? And... Mm-hmm. Something about that kind of frees them up. Instead of worrying so much about plot, it's they're kind of almost to move into the able to move in the realm of like more of a character sort of development. I don't know if that. I'm wondering. So, so I haven't watched any of Better Call Saul. I mean, and and it's been it's been a number of years since I watched Breaking Bad, but um, I started that show off your recommendation the first time we went through it, and of course, it's a real landmark series a great mm. character study and and like you described you know the the story of someone going you know essentially from good to bad um really well executed mm. um i'm curious have you gone back and watched any any breaking bad or even any of saul's arcs in breaking bad after having seen better call saul does to like does does his performance like it like in any way like retroactively call upon you know his his prequel really, self at all that's a really good question um i i've seen a few episodes of breaking bad since it ended i haven't gone back through all the way though and a couple of those because i would be curious mm. based on you know what you're telling me here yeah. of a guy who has already tried to do the right thing once mm-hmm. like or or, or like been you know gone wrong tried to redeem himself mm-hmm. and then fall back again yeah someone who has that many layers of mm-hmm. depth on him yeah meeting walter white and uh oh no oh no jesse, jesse. okay yeah. sorry it's been a long it's <laughs> no. been a long time oh, um being totally. walter and jesse for the first time or even mm-hmm. early on and like if his responses are at all informed by what they're doing mm-hmm. with him you know like yeah. I would, I would, I'd, I would doubt that he ever seems fully out of character in any way, even retroactively. But, but, um, because I think they're better showrunners and writers than that. Mm-hmm. But, um, I would be curious to see if there's any element of that at all. You know? Yeah, I really, I'm really wondering that now too. I want to go back and see because I do remember. Yeah, it was mostly, mostly just the, the con artist, which, I, which, which is what I love about Better Call Saul is being able to take this sort of like. I mean, you know, there were there were elements of like more humanity to him, but overall, just kind of a a a, a very amusing, in, but also just kind of just scummy human being, <laughs> just a horrible human being. How how broad of talent and interest is the supporting cast in this show compared yeah. to Breaking Bad? So it's it's exact on the exact same level. I mean, it is it's fantastic. Wow. So. Okay. Um, I, I don't remember at what point they become a love interest, but um, there is another uh, lawyer named uh, it was Kim Wexler, played by uh, 
Ray, Ray Seahorn. I think that's how, I think that's her name. Ray Seahorn, who is, um, who is amazing. And she actually, I don't want to go to, I'm, I'm not going to give too much away, but um, at this point in the show, I mean, she, she's become almost as big of a character as, as Jimmy or as Saul um, and as significant of a character and someone that you care about her, the, her outcome too, because obviously she is not in Breaking Bad. <laughs> she's uh and, so there's this and just continual almost every episode like what what's going to happen with her you know how is this mm-hmm. how what is her destination where does she end up um she's amazing in it um and they bring back do they do bring back several characters over time like eventually Gus Fring um comes back oh, yeah. which was saying several you know Uncle Tio oh not Uncle Tio oh my goodness Uncle uh Uncle Tio's uncle uncle <laughs> <laughs> what is this oh my goodness uncle uh, i can't remember this book. something yeah oh my goodness um so several characters come up but there's a lot of new characters as well one one decision that they made that i'm so glad they did is they brought back um mike ermentrout um oh uh, yeah yeah which uh oh gosh jonathan banks that's his yeah and i oh my goodness he you know, for as amazing as he was in in, uh, in Breaking Bad, uh, you learn so much more about him, and you get to see so much more of him in in Better Call Saul. You get a little bit more backstory, and he has a very similar, almost as kind of a similar trajectory as as uh, Jimmy or as, as Saul, because he is coming to Arizona to be with family because he was a crooked cop. Um, and he made some really bad decisions. People suffered from it. People he really cared for deeply suffered for it. And so his way of kind of making amends is going to be closer to family. And to and especially, you know, which you know about in Breaking Bad, his granddaughter. Um, and he he feels like what he's done is unforgivable. That he there's no way he can redeem himself except maybe he can leave his family. It's kind of almost almost it's different, different circumstances, but almost sort of like Walter White asked, like, you know, he feels like he can do nothing right, but maybe he can earn a little bit extra money and leave them with something. And sadly that kind of pull to try to earn some money or, you know, it it kind of leads him back to what made him a really great crooked cop. Um, (laughs) It kind of leads him back down that path as well, where he starts doing, you know, first he's kind of work, you know, doing small odds and ends. Then it snowballs and becomes doing slightly more illegal things and um and it's another sort of like man i feel like i'm bringing things down a more another that's you see that slide towards tragedy of like oh this guy he really wants to to do right by his family but even his uh, you know like walter white like jimmy best intentions um really hurts him in the end ah man um, but his, I'm, I'm really glad. And so by season five, which is where we're at now, speaking of which, that's why I really want to recommend this show is um, season five just ended recently on AMC and they are planning on making um, season six, the final season, which you can kind of, te- by season five, you can kind of tell it is barreling. It is, it is, a barreling might be too strong a word, but it is, it is rushing towards <laughs> something, mm-hmm. uh, it is rushing towards the ending. You can tell that. They they know where they're going and it's it is it is gripping right now, um, but I will say one one thing. Sorry, I'm like really babbling about this uh, 
I'm really going on and on. <laughs> one, one thing I will say that I learned, so I'm not talking about how, you know, the new season's barreling towards an ending, but one thing I've actually really appreciated in the first several seasons is, um, I don't know, I feel like with, with Walter White, with Breaking Bad, you know, because of the what was happening with drugs, with meth, DEA, uh, all the stakes were really high, you know? We're, all, we're life and death constantly. Very, very high. And one thing I loved about Better Call Saul is that it kind of proved that the stakes, I don't know how to put this, stakes don't have to be high to make you really interested in a, in a, in a character. Like if you know this uh, certain character, you know these group of characters, and the stakes may seem low. So like they're, you know, Jimmy's a lawyer, Kim is a lawyer. Um, the stakes could be, oh, they, they misspelled something on a document. You know, that sounds, that's a really low stake, you know, like they missed something on some court, you know, filing, but because they care about it and because it's big, it's high stakes to them and you care about these characters, it becomes high stakes to you too. And so I've loved it, um, the way some of the plots and some of the things that happen in Better Call Saul are, you know, when you like, if you just were to describe it without knowing who you were dealing with, it would seem really insignificant. Like it's not that big, like why, how could that make for entertain, <laughs> entertaining television? Uh, but they pull it off because you, you know, I feel like with with this show, they're really able to kind of hone in on the characters, really make you care for them, really make you understand them. And uh, and so tiny, tiny things, you're just I'm, you're on the edge of your seat. You're like, oh, man, they got this address wrong. What are they going to do? <laughs> and uh, it's it's <laughs> phenomenal. Now, granted, there are uh, there are moments of high stakes, you know, higher stakes, of course. But um but I've really appreciated how even the small moments and the small, th- seemingly small things, um, if they mean a lot to the character, then they mean a lot to you. And I, I've loved that. And I say, if you if you can at all, because I think seasons one through four on Netflix, and I'm sure five will come out eventually, um, jump in and, um, I don't know, kind of uh, be in for the long haul because the character development is really where it's at, I feel like. And it's really fantastic storytelling. I mean, I feel like it's all the great elements of break of breaking bad as far as the technical you know the cinematography the music the editing i mean they're all of that is carries over so and, and and is probably even improved you know it's like a lot of people who you know who cut their teeth on on breaking bad now are like really just like full throttle on better call Saul, and so all that is fantastic as well but um but the characters really really shine and um yeah yeah it's a it is a it's a tremendous show Awesome. So that's currently on Netflix now, and then the mm-hmm. current run episodes are on AMC, right? Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Currently okay. on AMC. Yeah. And it just—I guess we're we're recording. It ended around mid-April, season five. So my guess is maybe season six will be a yearish from then. Usually, the one thing that, for better or worse, and they did this towards the end of Breaking Bad too, is I—and the one thing I love about AMC is they really let the writers the the creators of the show the producers they really let them have the time to get the story right and so the the last two or three seasons of of better call Saul, it's been over a year in between like sometimes it's like a year and Mm. a half yeah it which is torturous (laughs) for like viewers but at the same time knowing oh this is this is all in order to to get it right it it it's like you're okay with it Mm -hmm. you're okay as long as they it's like you can just tell they care that much about the story that they they're willing to do that, and so that it it kind of earns its own sort of admiration for them because 
and you can tell they're really they're really getting it right. This this season was almost a flawless season. I mean, it was ah uh, man, it was it was fantastic. Okay, so my uh, selection, my offering for tonight, is a horror film from 1980. Um, if you haven't recognized it from our uh, episode title already, <laughs> then um, <clears throat> then I have a lot to share with you. Um, <laughs> it is based on a Stephen King novel, kind of. Um, it's called The Shining. So, um, The Shining, uh, listen, if you have any kind of regular interaction with horror films, I'm sure you've seen it and you've probably seen it more times than I have. We, you know, Tim and I have been talking a lot lately in between episodes about uh, different films and things that we want to talk about, things that we've seen or haven't seen, ideas around that. And, um, I was talking to either my brother or my wife. I can't remember because uh, we were watching something else and we were just talking about like movies that you feel like everyone's seen, but you haven't. And this is certainly one of the ones that I had not seen that I felt like everybody had seen. So like I had seen enough pieces of it in like um, horror movie clip specials or uh, saw it parodied on a really excellent episode of the Simpsons. Um, and some, uh, one of the, one of their Halloween episodes from years and years ago. Um, so, you know, there, there's, and I've seen bits and pieces here and there. I remember seeing my brother watching it when I was too young to be seeing it. So, um, so I was just like, okay, well let's just, let's just give it a shot from beginning to end and see what it's, what, what's going on. So, um, yeah, this movie, it's, um, it's a little, I want to say it's hard to describe, but it's so, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Like, so I, I've, I've gotten, I don't want to say that I have increased my fascination with horror films. I guess maybe I've just gotten a little braver in my old age, which sounds like such a silly thing to say. <laughs> I used to avoid horror films like the plague. I just didn't have a lot of interest in them. And I didn't have any interest in sort of the adrenaline rush that you get by being scared when, when watching a movie. Like it's just not mm-hmm. the kind yeah. that's there for me. Um, I started slowly getting introduced into those moments in various like crime dramas or crime thrillers and stuff like that. They would have like an occasional jump scare or those, you know, sort of foreboding moments or elements of plot. And so, um, in like my growing, uh, appreciation for horror as a genre, I will say that I still don't care very much for, uh, like for like gore, um, horror, you know, like you're, your Saw franchises or your, your Eli Roth films, you know, things like that, which no disrespect to yeah. those people. It's just not, it doesn't resonate with me. I don't have a lot of interest in it, but one type of horror I really will kind of get into from time to time is sort of less is more, um, which the shining is, I would say 95% atmosphere, um, in its horror, uh, which is just, and it's so scary. <laughs> it's, it's just, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's an incredibly well put together film. Um, Stanley Kubrick directed it. And of course, you know, he's a, he was a, a wonderfully talented director with a, with a certain, certain trademark, a certain style with which he approached all his films, uh, that were always a little bit provocative in one way or another. Um, so if you know nothing about the shining, <laughs> I'll try to give you it, it. It it is pretty can be pretty simply described. I mean, um, it's a it's basically a story about um, a man and woman and their young child who 
um, who have a bit of a troubled family history, which kind of gets explored a little bit throughout the film. But they go to this remote, um, <clears throat> this remote Colorado hotel deep in the mountains um, over a sort of a winter break for the man uh, Jack Nicholson to be the winter caretaker for the hotel. Um, so they're completely isolated and cut off from society. Um, there other than like a, like a ham radio or something. And, um, he basically had to stay there for like six months. Um, and that's his job. And he, and then they slowly, he slowly goes insane. <laughs> and that's, that's a uh, pretty much, pretty much the very short version of it. Um, and, uh, oh, and uh, this is kind of a big point. The hotel is haunted. So, um, which contributes to it. Um, anyway, so, uh, there are so many, uh, so many amazing elements to this film. I remember, you know, reaching out to Tim after I saw it. And one thing that I recognize is that for it to be such a scary film and for it to be so terrifying in ways and, and so visually disturbing, it's got an incredibly low body count for a horror movie. Yeah. Um, I think you might even only see one murder happen on screen. Um, you know, you do run into a few other dead bodies here or there, but, um, it's, it's pretty, pretty wild. Um, that he, that Kubrick and everybody involved in the production could create such a tense atmosphere Mm -hmm. with so little, um, payoff. Yeah. On things. Yeah. Um, and normally that's the kind of thing that would really get on my nerves is a lot of setup without a lot of payoff. But that is where the horror lies, is all the anticipation waiting for something to happen. And the and and the movie starts with this just wide shot, which is actually a really beautiful scenic area of where they were shooting on location. But starting off with the score, which is just one of the scariest scores of any movie I've ever heard. Um, It's all very, you know, it's very 1980. So it's very like synth heavy, you know, stuff. But like they hit all the right notes um, in the score to just really, really trouble you. Um, Yeah, I have read more about about these things. So what, what I find interesting is that, you know, so Jack Nicholson is the lead. And of course, you know, you know who Jack Nicholson is, but Shelley Duvall plays his wife and, um, Danny Lloyd, um, uh, plays their son, Danny and Shelley Duvall. I mean, she, she had been in a lot of things, but she, had, I don't think she had been in a whole lot of things after that. Uh, certainly not as much as Jack Nicholson. Um, yeah. and, and the son, Danny, like he was in hardly anything at all. Um, and so, the these roles are pretty iconic and record you know for, for, for them in their careers and um i wasn't so <laughs> i was i don't know how to describe it like jack nicholson first of all like it's he fascinates me visually sometimes because the oldest movie I ever saw him in was Chinatown which i think was in like mm. 1976 yeah. and he looked like an old man then yeah um, and this was in 1980 and he still looks old and he was probably in his thirties, I'm guessing at that point or forties. I don't know, but, uh, at best. And he, um, <laughs> um, the way he just plays psychological breakdown, mm-hmm. um, just slow and irritable and, 
and like, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how this, this hotel interacts with the different characters. Um, it's almost like, uh, cause they play upon his flaws that he mm-hmm. brings with him, you know, as a character, like he, he may or may not be an abusive man. Um, probably is, uh, you know, looking back, um, certainly it, it was a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there is mention to his past behaviors and stuff. And so that just brings all the worst out of him when he's, um, put under stress. Um, Shelley Duvall's character is just bless her heart. Like I read later on that apparently Kubrick just treated her like garbage on the set of the movie, like which to which to the point to which people thought maybe he was doing it on purpose to get the performance out of her. Um, because she looked just so exasperated and depleted. Um, and of course terrified cause it's a horror movie, but, um, for the majority of that film. And at first it wasn't playing well with me. I was just like, man, she, she's kind of obnoxious. Um, but the, the, the longer things went, she was just so, um, so timid as a character, mm. you know? And I don't think that's, you know, the, the actress, I think that's just the character there, but really timid and submissive and passive. And, um, so the terror gets really real there. And then you've got Danny, who is just this weird kid <laughs> um, who m- may have a ghost that talks to him as an invisible friend, uh, just as a voice in his head. And yeah. um, the way he interacts with that voice, he just like, I could, Tim can see me doing this, but like he, he like bends his finger as if his finger's talking <laughs> and he gives it a different voice. And the voice he gives it is like is like the voice of the scream murderer in the film scream, like, you know, and just, and, um, I read in, in trivia and background information that he apparently just decided to do that in his audition. Like that was not a directoral note uh, for him. And they're like, yeah, keep doing that. And I'm like, Oh good. Is he really hearing voices? This is terrifying. Um, so, um, anyway, he, he he interacts with some of the more haunted characteristics of the hotel um, as well, and uh, there, there's a couple of other supporting characters as well. But it really centers around the family, and um, I think more beyond the story and the performances, I just want to talk about the style a little bit more. Like um, they just picked the perfect perfect setting, and like um, I I don't know. You know, for as much as I like to talk about movies and TV, and I have a very novice level education of production and things like that, or maybe a slight intermediate since I did go to college. But um, so I, I think it's the cinematography really that um, that grabs me so much. The way they line up so many shots in that film. Um, yeah. There are multiple sequences in the film. It's, it's this giant hotel that's empty. Um, and so they're on this giant set and they have uh, Danny riding like a, a big wheel, which is, you know, this small, like tricycle type, um, vehicle, um, across these hardwood floors and the camera is just right behind him. So it's this one, it's this tracking, just one shot, just following him. So when he turns a corner, you're turning a corner and like going around and like, sometimes they do that 
with no score playing behind him and it's terrifying. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they bring in that score that's terrifying and it, you know, it's, it's all the more foreboding and it's just, it's interesting because the story itself is about the creeping, um, this creeping, slowly creeping feeling of dread sweeping into the family Mm -hmm. as they're stuck here. They're, I should say like they're snowbound, um, because it's the winter time. So this, this, you know, blizzard knocks off, uh, access to civilization. So they can't go on the roads or anything like that. So they're stuck, um, snowed in. And so this cabin fever of sorts where they're just like, just slowly withering away mentally. Um, you can kind of just feel this constant sense of anticipation in the film that something's going to happen. And for so much of the movie, nothing ever does. Mm-hmm. Um, that it almost kind of does it to you, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, um, and I feel like that was so intentional, uh, in the film. And I can, and I was, and this is so weird. Um, so at this point, by the time this episode uploads, our uncut gems episode will have already, um, been uploaded. Uh, and so I, I, I did not enjoy that experience, <laughs> but this one, I think maybe it's the supernatural element. Mm, yeah. Maybe it's a little more slickly produced and a little less visceral i mean i don't know exactly how to compare the two Mm -hmm. creating the same emotions but me feeling almost more impressed by it with with this one um than than i was with the last one but uh so it's just so interesting and so you know again i'm speaking mainly to any possibly remaining crowd who knows little to nothing about this film or its story. Um, so the shining is based off a Stephen King novel, which actually has some, the film took some wild deviations, um, in, in the story from, uh, in the movie, sorry, from the story that Stephen King wrote. So Stephen King hated the movie. Um, still does to this day, I think. Um, Last I checked, not like I talked to him or anything, but anyway, (laughs) the last I saw, he was not a fan. Um, Now, um, this film also got mixed reviews when it first came out. Mm. It was not so widely accepted. And then I think sometime, maybe five or six years later, um, I was just reading about this earlier tonight. So um, I'm going to see if I can find some of the information here. But I want to say maybe Rolling Stone uh, or some other magazine had come out with an article sort of appealing for people to um, revisit it. Hmm. Like saying, you know, it was underrated and all this reappraisal. Yeah, Tim Cahill of Rolling Stone noted in an interview with Stanley Kubrick in 1987, there was already a critical reevaluation of The Shining in process. And um, that is just something that Kubrick's films I think are known for like a lot of people and I'm not trying, I I, listen, I don't fully understand what that man was capable of in his filmmaking. But one thing I have noticed is that a lot of people, his, his films, if you can get through them, um, offer a whole lot more upon rewatching. Um, he's just got layers and layers of subtext and the stuff that he does. Um, and so he's, it's almost like a trademark for him. Um, and so I was, uh, long before 
I had seen The Shining in the recent years, um, I came across um, another film as a documentary called Room 237. And it is specifically about the deeper critical analysis of The Shining. And so um, I didn't know that at the time. I just thought it was a documentary about like the making of The Shining or something like that. So I found that as well. So um, bad news, if I've gotten anybody excited to see The Shining, I just straight up paid to rent it through through Amazon Prime, <laughs> um, which since it's a 30-year-old, 40-year-old film now, uh-huh. um, it didn't cost that much to rent. So, you know, Corona times call for Corona measures. What can you say? <laughs> so um, the, um, but Room room 237, I think it was on, maybe it was on Stars. Or something else. I forget. But um, anyway, this is actually, yeah, a film about the critical analysis of the, of the film, uh, a documentary about that. And so it follows, you don't actually ever see the people giving the voiceovers in the documentary. It's mainly just stock footage of the film and just revisiting scenes and a few like map overlays of the, of the hotel itself that people have drawn up themselves and stuff. And it follows these three different people who have three different conspiracy theories about what the film is actually about, uh, about what Kubrick's actual messages. And so there's, um, I, I will just for fun tell you what the theories are. And if you ever get to come across it, um, I was intending on bringing up Room 237 as a companion piece of The Shining anyways, because the last time I'd seen it up until the time I actually watched it, it was on Hulu. So I thought, you know, cool, you can find it. So I think it'll probably circle back around Hulu at some point because Hulu does that. Um, but there are three prevailing – there were three prevailing theories in that documentary as to what the sort of overall point of The Shining was, what the deeper meaning about it was. One um, – one guy saw it as a uh, um, an allegory for the Holocaust, hmm. which uh, which was interesting. Which yeah. I thought it was a bit of a bit of a reach um, <laughs> in places, um, but not so, not as much of a reach as the next one, uh, which was a guy who was convinced that we faked the Apollo Eleven moon landing. And that Stanley Kubrick was actually in on the staging of the moon landing. Like he mm. create, he helped produce it. Um, wow. And this film is like a subtle confession of his involvement with that. Huh. Um, again, again, the things that they see in the movie are, are very interesting for that. Um, but my, I wouldn't say my favorite uh, one cause that sounds kind of gross, but um, they, I think the most compelling theory is that it is a, um, uh, a, a metaphor for um, Native American genocide, um, and wow. uh, they they have a lot of there, there's there's a whole lot of Native American imagery in the film, anyways. Um, but uh, there, there's a lot, and, and even references and lines and stuff about it being built on an Indian burial ground and all this other stuff. But um, as as was the case in every '80s horror movie that involved supernatural haunting, something was built on an Indian burial ground. But um, anyway, the, the things they point to to support that are very interesting to me. Um, and also, even apart from that, they spend time building up to the theories, just talking about certain moments that, that in other movies, it's almost like Kubrick has afforded this great pass by, by, by the film community because they point out so many continuity errors and, and goofs and things that happen, mm. but, they are, but they are sold on the fact that those are intentional. Oh wow! And not 
not mistakes. Um, and when they tie them to their theories, you, you, you kind of want to believe it. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very, and when you, when they can tie it to other things, other moments of foreshadowing or things that happen in the movie, I'm like, it's very interesting. So like one thing that I will mention, and I can't really remember how they concluded this idea, but I thought it was a really wildly interesting observation is that when you, when I talked about that tracking shot of Danny riding his big wheel around the hotel, right? Mm -hmm. The movie is mapping out the hotel for you. Mm-hmm. So they are showing that scene and then they're doing like, you remember the Indiana Jones movies, whenever they would fly across the map, they would just draw a line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as the going. So they're yeah. like doing that with the, with the, tri- with the tricycle and they're like drawing hallways and stuff mm-hmm. with a, with a, like a blueprint of the hotel. And so they loop that back all the way to the very first scene of the movie, which is when Jack Nicholson interviews for this position as being the winter caretaker. Mm-hmm. And he's in this office interviewing for it. And this guy's office has this great big window behind him that's seeing out um to the out to the outside well that w- they said they call that the impossible window because apparently the location of the office in the hotel it is not possible for there to be a window in that room um that faces to the outside and mm-hmm. so it's just one of those things where like under another director i'd be like oh well that was just a dumb decision they weren't paying mm-hmm. attention it's like, yeah. or is that just another thing where they're like, something's not right here, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. The hotel itself, and so <clears throat> it's um, it's just really fascinating, and so um, there's so much, there's so much to think about um mm-hmm. in this movie, um, and at the same time, there is just a lot of hold your breath moments uh, with that. I think um, with it being 40 years since the film came out, and us having seen a whole heck of a lot more of Jack Nicholson since then. He's a little less menacing um, because yeah, he's yeah. almost a caricature now in real mm-hmm. life. Yep. So uh, that takes a little bit of the edge off, which is nice. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite, uh, quite an impressive horror film. And um, I think, I don't want to say Stephen King is wrong to not like the film, I think I can understand why he doesn't like it. I I never really appreciate uh, much art that deviates from its um, source material mm-hmm. unless it's a necessity, like um, like a lot of the Marvel films that that um, that included heroes that the studio didn't have rights to at the mm-hmm. time. You know, um, you know, you, you run into problems like that. You can't help yourself. But yeah. this was just a willful act by Kubrick, and it's honestly, it's almost as if he deviated so much that you can kind of afford to treat the book and the movie mm-hmm. like they're yeah. two different, they're two completely different existences. Like yeah. they just share a name. You know, mm-hmm. and, and a few character names, but anyway, it's um, it's yeah, it's it's really good. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's got an eighty-five percent on Rotten Tomatoes, um, based on ninety-one reviews. I just just happened to notice that on the page in front of me right now, but um, and also um, I'll have to go. I would be interested to go back if I still have this book. I used to um own a couple of books by, um, by Roger Ebert, by the late Roger Ebert, and um, he had a had a book called the great movies and that actually his review of the shining made it into that book, um, saying that Stanley Kubrick's cold and frightening. The shining challenges us to decide who is the reliable observer whose idea of events can we trust is, is that it is this elusive open endedness that makes Kubrick's film so strangely disturbing. Mm. Uh, yeah. And strangely disturbing is definitely how I would, um, 
would would end up describing that. But it's it's so worth revisiting if you haven't in a long time. And uh, and I would definitely recommend Room 237. Whether there's merit to those theories or not, it's still something to chew on if you enjoyed mm-hmm. uh, that film as well. Awesome. Yeah, that 237 is one that uh, – Room 237 is one that um, I guess when I first heard – heard about you know the release i was really interested in, but still never managed to to see but i'm really really excited to watch that eventually yeah i remember now the only other major um hollywood adaptation of the shining that i remembered was in actually a pretty recent film called ready player one mm-hmm. um which, which, by the way, is incredible. Maybe I can get to it one day. Um, it is, it is the Easter eggiest movie of all time. Um, but they, they do a, they do a Room Two Thirty Seven homage in that, oh, which wow. is also based on a novel. Uh, Ready Player One is also based on a novel. Uh, it's about like the world's largest multi, massively multi online role playing game, mm-hmm. and that's based on this ba- basically based on eighties nostalgia. <laughs> So there's a level based on room 237 um, and that, oh, that wow. the characters end up having to go into. And so um, that would be entertaining to actually go back and look at <laughs> um, um, with this knowledge. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yep. So shining room awesome. 237. If you dare check it out. Anyway, thanks guys for joining us again yeah. for uh, tonight's episode. Jack Torrance could use a good lawyer and, um, Again, uh, check out Netflix for Better Call Saul or AMC. Mm-hmm. Get you know, try to get caught up for that last season. Um, try to find The Shining somewhere. Check out Room 237 uh, for some good supplemental material uh, about Kubrick's film. And uh, if you are interested, uh, more episodes. Um, you know, check us out on iTunes, Spotify. Um, Email us, nightcheesepodcast at gmail.com for any questions, recommendations, uh, suggestions, things you might want to hear us talk about. We also now have an active Twitter account. I joked about it a few episodes ago, but <laughs> we, um, we have one now. It's um, at Pod Nightcheese. So uh, Pod is in podcast, Pod Nightcheese. Uh, find us, follow us, we'll follow you back, and um, we can have a conversation. So uh, thanks for joining us again. And until next time, Keep working on your night cheese. Oh, really? How fancy. I don't even know if cereal do that kind of thing. <laughs>